0: Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask if you would take your copy of Scripture and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We're continuing in our series, There is None Greater Than Christ, and we're going to pick up in just a few minutes at uh, Hebrews chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 11 and read through our text for today, which is 11 through 16. Uh, A little over a week ago, the sports world stopped. Our family and I were watching the Bills and Bengals Monday night football game uh, when Damar Hamlin had a cardiac arrest on the football field. And the game was postponed, and then eventually it was canceled, and you saw the the teammates, the the, the kind of field gather around, and coaches and players were all trying to figure out what they were going to do. Sportscasters, newscasters were talking about an event that was quite unprecedented in in sports. And one of the more fascinating things that took place in in watching all of that was how many people turned their attention to prayer. Newscasters, sportscasters, even on ESPN, a sportscaster prayed for the the health and the safety of Damar Hamlin. People through social media were telling others to pray for his health. It's no doubt, and no surprise, rather, that DeMar Hamlin is doing okay. He's out of the hospital. I think God heard some of those prayers. I don't think he heard all of them, all the prayers of all the people praying, because not all of the people praying were praying to the right person. Nevertheless, he heard some of those prayers, and it's a tremendously encouraging thing to see the attention of a country whose values and morals are not at all in line with Scripture, come together to pray during that particular period and season for that person. The only thing I can relate it to is kind of what happened when the World Trade Center was attacked, 9-11, when the heart and attention of the country turned to God. In other words, there comes a point where we realize there's no one else who can help. There's nothing else we can do. No amount of talking is going to make someone better. No amount of hoping or wishing is going to make someone better. We've got to talk to somebody who could make someone better, and people turn their attention to the Lord in prayer. One of the things I want to do in this text of Scripture, we're going to look at a text that tells us how to pray, tells us what, what it is that we ought to do when we pray, and one of the things I want us to come out of this with is a recognition of sound doctrine about how it is that you and I as Christians... When we gather together, either privately or together as followers of Jesus, when we pray, what does that look like? What does God expect of us when we pray? And how do we make sure we line up underneath the authority of Scripture and have confidence when we approach God in His greatness? We're going to begin reading with with chapter uh, 4, verse 11. It's a verse we read last week, but it's a transitional verse. He goes to say in verse 11, "...let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The connection is that in the previous chapters, uh, the writer of Hebrews has been talking about the rest that the people of God rejected. They didn't didn't, uh, enter into the promised land because they didn't believe in God. And so they avoided that, and he's warning them, he's encouraging them, make every effort to enter that rest. Well, how do we make every effort? He's going to tell us here in the text we make every effort by making sure our lives are underneath the authority of Scripture, trusting what God says, and then by praying and holding on to God and depending on Him as followers of Jesus. Pick up in verse 12. We We're to strive to enter that rest for, verse 12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, and help in our time of need. In the context, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they had not believed God. They had not counted on God. They had not depended on God. And so they were, God swore in his wrath, I will not let them enter my rest. And so there's a warning. Make every effort. Make sure that you're in Christ He goes on and gives another affirmation in the text or or admonition. Hold on to Jesus. How do we make sure we're holding on to Jesus? There are two ways that flow out of the text. We make sure we're holding on to Jesus by reading God's word humbly and by praying boldly. Those are the blanks to fill in in your text. We read God's word humbly and we pray boldly. Now, over the course of my ministry, I've been in ministry for more than 20 years now, I was an associate pastor or a missions pastor at another church. And I've been here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. It's kind of hard to believe. I'm in my eighth year. I feel like still the new pastor. But I've been in my eighth year at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. And one of the things I've seen as a pastor over the years is a lot of Christians or a lot of people who claim to be Christians that truly are adrift. They're not really where they need to be in their relationship with God. I'm sure you could think of some folks like that. Think think of some folks in your family circles or relational circles who are not where they need to be in relationship with Jesus. They don't come to church when they they could come to church. They're kind of not where they ought to be. And I like to illustrate it this way. A Christian without the word of God and prayer in their lives is like a sailor who's lost at sea. A sailor without a boat at sea. A sailor who either is holding on to a piece of driftwood or who is treading water in the ocean. They're just kind of floundering. Folks, to be a follower of Jesus, to hold on to Christ, we must make sure that we have the twin disciplines of God's word in our lives and prayer in our lives. And if we let go of either one of them or both of them, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to flounder in our faith. The reason so many people that you know and I know are kind of not where they need to be as a follower of Jesus, one of the primary reasons is they're not letting God's word speak to them on a regular basis. They're not talking to God on a regular basis through prayer, and so they're floundering. So I would commend to you that in order for us to hold on to our confession in Christ, we need to read humbly, and we need to read humbly because God's Word ultimately reads us. It's not primarily what we get out of Scripture that is important. That's important. It does matter. But we read Scripture, and what Scripture does is it shines a light on our own lives. It's like a mirror. It shows us who we are. Notice what the text says in verse 12. Why is this? For the Word of God is living and active. God's Word is alive. It's alive to change people's hearts and lives, to make people different. Now, let me explain what I don't mean by living and active. In our contemporary American kind of vernacular... There are two different interpretations, or primary interpretations, of our Constitution, kind of the ruling document of our land. There's an originalist interpretation, and that's basically those who would say that the founding fathers who penned the Constitution meant what they wrote, and we ought to derive meaning from authorial intent. In other words, the Constitution can't mean something different than the authors wrote. That's an originalist interpretation. Another interpretation goes like this, that the Constitution is a living, breathing document. In part, that means that that some interpreters think that the Constitution shifts and changes with the cultural mores and values of our day. So it can be adjusted to fit contemporary experiences as opposed to finding meaning from, from the original authorial intent and limiting our understanding of the Constitution to that. Now... Here's what I want to say very clearly. When the writer of Hebrews uses the word living, he doesn't have in mind anything of that living, breathing concept that some interpret the Constitution with today. Uh, For sake of full disclosure, regarding the Constitution, I'm an originalist. I believe that the authors had an intent to what they wrote, and we ought to interpret the Constitution inside of the intent that they wrote it. The reason I am an originalist is because with regard to Scripture... And with regard to other documents that we read, the author should be the one to dictate what he means, not the reader. See, if you interpret it otherwise, then I can go to the Bible and just say, okay, I think it means this. And I'll just adjust it to make me feel like or make me feel better about what I read. That's not the way we get to read and interpret what God's Word says. See, authorial intent means that God has spoken and he has said, here's what it means, and we're responsible to respond underneath the authority of Scripture. Now, when the writer of Hebrews was penning this, he didn't have in mind a contemporary understanding of a living, breathing document. What he had in mind was simply this, God's Word is alive and at work. This is not a dead book. There are many books that are classic books, Tremendously important books throughout human history. Books that have been penned that have changed cultures and changed ideas. Important books. They're dead books. They're not alive. There is a book, though, that is alive, and it's alive because God spoke it. See, when we open up God's Word, God speaks through the pages of Scripture because it's His Word at work in people's lives. And it's at work in people's lives all the time. Today, in baptism... We baptized Caroline and we baptized Michael. They were baptized because God's word convicted them of their sins, showed them their need for Jesus, and God changed them as a result of their response to his word. Now, friends, in this congregation today, who, who I've shared with, who, who, who the only difference, the thing that was going on in their lives, there are folks who, you know, you know who you are, things that had happened in your life that weren't right weren't what God wanted, weren't pleasing to God. And the only real change that took place from how you used to be to who you are now is you got around some people who encouraged you or held you accountable for reading the Bible. The only thing that changed in your life is God's Word. And God's Word changed you. It convicted you. It remade you into the person that you are today. Alan Whittington, one of my great friends, he, he told me before he came, before I came here to be your pastor, he started reading the Bible through year after year, and he's still reading the Bible through. Am I right? Alan's testified to me on a number of occasions, I can't get enough of reading the Bible because it is God speaking to us. The Bible changes people's hearts and lives. It is living. It is effective. Active means that it's effective, that it does its work. What is, God, what is the work of God's Word? The work of God's Word is to show us our sin and to show us our need for repentance and change. It is powerful. I, I know of people who just by read, the reading of Scripture have come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is so powerful, it can turn skeptics into converts. Many, many years ago, one of the great uh, preachers of the First Great Awakening, George Whitfield. Fantastic communicator. known on on both sides of the Atlantic. He preached in the First Great Awakening before the the colonies became the United States. So he had an impact all over the world. He would preach in open-air environments, sometimes to as many as 15,000 or 20,000 people without microphones. Just a fantastic communicator of God's Word. And many hundreds and thousands of people came to faith in Jesus under the preaching of George Whitefield. But because God had given him a measure of outward success and people had been converted under his ministry, there were many detractors that uh, Whitfield had to deal with. And there was a particular group of people. They called themselves the Hellfire Club. They mimicked and they mocked Whitfield, didn't believe he had anything to say worth listening to. In fact, they would gather around together, and that's all they would do is mimic and mock. On one particular occasion, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Thorpe, a part of the Hellfire Club... Uh, decided that he was going to mimic and mock the last sermon that he heard Whitfield preach. So he stood up in front of his buddies, the club that was there in front of him, and he began to repeat word for word the sermon that Whitfield preached. He mimicked exactly his mannerisms, the way he would hold his hands, what he would say and what what he would do. And in the middle of that mockery, Mr. Thorpe was convicted and cut to the heart, fell down, And was converted to trust Jesus alone because the words that he was repeating, even in mockery, had power to convert him. And he became a genuine and effective follower of Jesus in Bristol, England. The Word of God is living and effective. You want to know what changes people's lives? It's not a sermon. It's not a preacher. It's not a person, unless that person is the Lord Jesus. It is God's Word that changes people's lives. That's why our worship services begin with Scripture. It's why we read a Scripture that we're trying to memorize. That's why our sermons come from Scripture. Our songs are full of Scriptural truth because it is God's Word that changes people's hearts and lives. God's Word is living and effective, active. It's at work. Not only that, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. He's illustrating that with the Roman short sword that was double-edged, that could pierce anything. It was tremendously sharp. He said it's sharper than any two edged sword, piercing what? To the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Some Christians kind of get caught up a little bit in that uh, illustration. Does that mean that that there is a a unique division between a person's soul and a person's spirit and body? And how do we make that work? I, I don't think the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to make those distinctions. I think simply the point is you can't divide a person's soul and spirit. You can't divide a person's joints and marrow, and yet God's Word can penetrate both. God's Word penetrates and cuts. It shows us our sinfulness. It shows us our unrighteousness. It brings us to a place where we realize that we need a living God. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Why does it do that? To discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word shows us our sinfulness. It's pretty obvious when someone is not living a life in accord with the Ten Commandments. But God's Word goes deeper than the Ten Commandments. Some of you in the room may be thinking, I'm okay. I'm okay with God because I don't break the law as bad as they do. I don't don't break God's Word as bad as they do. Someone out there, someone who is immoral, someone who's a thief, or someone who is full of anger, someone who is a murderer. But God's word goes on to get deeper. More than just our outward action, he goes and aims at our inward motivations. What's going on in our heart and our lives? Jesus said that if you have anger in your heart toward a brother, you have as good as committed murder against your brother. God's word pierces even to the sinful thoughts and intentions of the soul, discerns. We get our word critical from that word. It carries with it the idea that God knows. If you're sitting here in the worship service today and you look like a Christian and you act like a Christian on the outside, God knows what's true of your heart. He knows what you did last night. He knows what films you've been watching. He knows what clips you've been streaming through. He knows what songs you're listening to. He knows who you hate. He knows who you despise. He knows the unforgiveness in your heart. He knows every bit of it. And God's word is aimed at penetrating our hearts and convicting us of that unrighteousness. And why is that? That sounds pretty brutal. I mean, we think of God's word as redemptive and encouraging and positive. And it is. But it's also convicting and critical and judgmental because we need to know our sinfulness. Here's why. Look at verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him Here's why, to whom we must give an account. Every single one of us, I don't care how old you are, how young you are, where you've been, where you've come from, what nationality you come from, what people group you're a part of, it doesn't matter, every single one of us one day will stand and give an account of our lives before God. People of Israel in the Old Testament had every opportunity to experience rescue from slavery and hope in the promised land. They enjoyed the rescue from slavery, but they rejected God's invitation to enter the promised land, and they experienced judgment. Folks, just because you come to church on a Sunday morning in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, and hear some good songs and sing some good music and hear God's word preached, that doesn't make you a Christian. Because you're going to stand and give an account of your life before God and either you're going to trust in Him alone to be your Savior, or you're going to be holding on to some kind of self-righteousness. You, can't, you can fool me. You can fool your neighbors. You can fool family members. You cannot fool God. can't. He sees it all. Everything you do is exposed to Him. He's not blinded. Nothing is hidden. And one day you will give an account of your life before God. That's why we need to read God's Word humbly. We need to read it humbly because it changes us. And it doesn't just convict and change those who are sinners and need salvation. It convicts those of us who are Christians. That's why we need God's Word regularly in our lives. Daily I read God's Word. I've followed a Bible reading plan for years where I read the Old Testament once in a year and the New Testament Psalms twice in a year. can't tell you how many times I've read through the Bible. I keep reading through the Bible because every time I read through the Bible, nearly every day I read in the Bible, God points out something in my life that either needs to be convicted or confessed or, or I need to do better with. The other Earlier this week, I was reading the book of Acts. And the last line of the chapter ends this way. And the church was full of the Holy Spirit and of joy. And the Holy Spirit convicted me. said, Chris, uh, you've not been very joyful lately. Not to your wife and not to your children and not about what's going on in your life. And obviously that means you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. And God convicted me. He addressed that in my heart and I had to confess that and ask His forgiveness. God's Word is living and effective and it shows us who we are which is pretty terrible, by the way. We are terrible. We're sinful. We're wicked. And he sees it all. But we're not just invited to read humbly because God's word reads us. It's like a mirror that shows us our sinfulness. We're invited to pray boldly because Jesus, watch this, he's the one who died on the cross to pay for the sins that God's word reveals in our lives. I love how this kind of transitional Uh, these transitional paragraphs fit together. He goes on. We've been exposed. Our sinfulness is before the eyes of God. He sees it all. Then look at verse 14. Since then, since then, since when? Since God's word has shown us how terrible we are as sinners and how much we're in need of repentance and confession and salvation. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He's warning his readers, let us then hold fast our confession. Let us hold on to Jesus because he has done something that we can't do. He took the payment for the sins that God sees in our lives. That's the whole point of the gospel. God sees everything you've done. He sees all your wickedness, all your shortcomings, but he doesn't leave you with them. He doesn't say, okay, here you are. You've got to pay your own penalty. Oh, we can choose that. We can absolutely choose that path and stand before God in judgment one day. But God didn't leave us there. What God did is he sent Jesus, the very Son of God, to take on human flesh to pay our penalty, to suffer on our behalf. He paid for the sins that only he can pay for, but all the sins that have been exposed in your life. He is our great high priest. In the the Old Testament, the high priests, when they would enter into the Holy of Holies, they would bring an atonement sacrifice once a year to atone for the people of God. And before they entered, the priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself. He had to go through the different stages of the temple. He had to go from the outer court to the inner court, and then the inner court to the holy place, and then from the holy place to the holy of holies. That was the pattern by which forgiveness was sought in the Old Testament. That's not at all what Jesus did. He didn't go through the physical temple, the earthly temple in Jerusalem. Notice what it says. He passed through the heavens. Jesus went... Not to make things right between us and people, at least not primarily. He went to make things right between us and God. He went to the heavenly throne room, the heavenly altar place, in order to bring forgiveness or make forgiveness possible on your behalf and mine. He's our great high priest who's done that. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The Bible tells us is that Jesus had every temptation you've ever faced. The temptations you've had to be angry, to be unforgiving, to be full of hate. Temptations you've had toward lustfulness or idolatry or immorality. The temptations to gossip or speak ill of someone else. All of those temptations Jesus faced. Jesus faced the temptations of the lonely and the isolated To rely on himself rather than rely on someone else. Jesus faced all of those temptations. And yet gloriously, wonderfully, the Bible tells us he faced those temptations and he never sinned. He never disobeyed God. He was tempted in every point as we are. He understands our weakness. Folks, let me tell you something. Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows when you question He knows when you doubt. He knows when you're afraid. He knows when you feel isolated. He knows when you feel like no one else understands. He knows because He, God, enfleshed Himself in a human body and He understands all the weaknesses, all the frailties of human experience. Jesus does. He knows all of that. and So He can stand in between God the Father and us because He knows... What you're going through and what I'm going through. And yet, in all of that weakness and all of that frailty that he humbled himself to experience, he never sinned. He never disobeyed God. Now, some have wondered over the years could Jesus have really even sinned? I mean, he's God in human flesh. Was it even really a temptation? Well, the text tells us he was truly tempted. And theologians have debated over the years whether he could have sinned and, and whether, whether the temptation was actually real for Jesus. I'm not sure those arguments or those debates are really worth a whole lot because the reality is Jesus didn't sin. Didn't sin. End of story. He never disobeyed the Father in any form or fashion. So he can stand before us. And, and Christians have wondered, well, if Jesus didn't sin and if he couldn't have sinned, did he really suffer temptation? Really? I mean, could he have felt that? C.S. Lewis, answering that question, put it this way. He articulated, articulated this, uh, this answer. He said, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. He said, this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find, the strength, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by giving in, or not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never found out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. You think you face faced strong temptations? None of us have faced really strong temptations. Jesus is the only one to ever face temptation to its full and come through those temptations without ever sinning. Folks, that is exactly why... He can serve as our high priest. He knows what you've gone through. He's been tempted and he has not sinned. He is the epitome of perfection. He stands between us and God. And he invites us to pray with confidence. He invites us to pray boldly because he stands between us and God. He paid for the sins that you and I have had exposed by the eyes of God. Notice what he goes on to say. Verse 16. Because of all this, Jesus, our high priest, let us then with confidence, confidence draw near to what? The throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us draw near how? With confidence. Uh, How many of you over the years have heard these halfway prayers by Christians? Maybe you prayed something like this. God, if you would, maybe you could. I think maybe it would be good if you'd do this. I'd like it. I I think I have an idea of what you might need to do. Could you intervene? Maybe, possibly. That's not the way we ought to pray. You know why we have a tendency to pray that way? Because we're praying based on our own perceptions of our own goodness. If that's the way you approach God, it might be because you're praying hoping that God won't hold yesterday against you. Right? Right? Because if you weren't really good yesterday, why in the world would God listen to you today? We all have a tendency to kind of build into this idea, right? I mean, our kids do this. My boys do this kind of all the time. Hey, I was good yesterday or I was good this morning. Why don't I get this privilege now? I mean, it, it, kind of that quid pro quo type mentality. But folks, what the Bible tells us is that's not the way God hears us. Christian, I want you to hear me very clearly. God does not listen to you based on the quality of Christian life you lived yesterday. God does not hear your prayers based on how good you were this morning. Because if God were listening to us based on our goodness, our quality of Christian life, he would never hear us because we're never good enough to enter the throne room of God. That's why it's called a throne of grace. Because if it were called a throne of justice, you and I would stand before God, and we wouldn't be just enough. If it were a throne of judgment, he's, we're gonna, people are going to stand before a throne of judgment. We're not going to be able to say against God, God, you made a mistake. I'm, not, I, I'm better than that person, and so you don't hold that against me. We're not going to be able to do that, it, but it's called a throne of grace because the reason we get to enter the presence of God and pray is because of what Jesus did on our behalf. Why are we to enter with confidence? Why are we to pray with boldness? Folks, because Jesus is in between us and the Father. When we pray, God doesn't see what you did yesterday. He doesn't see your wickedness and your depravity. He sees the perfection of Jesus. And so we pray with confidence. We approach the throne of grace. And aren't you glad it is a throne of grace, unmerited favor? It's not a throne that should intimidate, although the throne of God in Scripture does intimidate. Read Isaiah 6. God is high and lifted up. Isaiah fell on his face before God in his holiness. Revelation 4, all the creatures of heaven along with the elders fell on their face before the throne room of God. And yet here in the text, it is called a throne of grace that we can approach with boldness, with confidence. Why? Because Jesus has already been there. Jesus went there and paid for your sins. Jesus went there and cleansed you of your unrighteousness. And so we as Christian, Christian, hear me. When we pray, we can pray confidently. We can pray with boldness. And many of you are here today with some sort of need. Notice the way the, the, the text r- describes this. That we may receive what? Mercy, that is not getting what we deserve. And grace, that is getting what we don't deserve to help in our time of need. And some of you are there. Some of you received a diagnosis that's disturbing. Some of you have loved ones that, you, that you're burdened for. Some of you are caregivers to someone who, who you're not sure how you're going to make it through the next minute, much less the next week. Some of you are dealing with all kinds of relational challenges. You have a loved one that you're burdened for. You have a child that is wondered. You have a grandchild that is far from God, and you're carrying that burden, and you're wondering how you're going to get help to make it through that. Here's the invitation. The Bible invites us to pray boldly, to pray to God through Jesus Christ and ask God to give us the grace and help in time of need. Now, God doesn't promise to give us everything we pray for. He doesn't promise to take away cancer. He doesn't promise to always rescue from from the disease and the difficulty and the circumstance. But he does promise to give us mercy and grace in our time of need. And I'll tell you this. Since I was 18 years old, so 24 years of life, God has never failed in that promise for me. If you look back in your life, when you really came to him in need and in help and asking for him, he has never failed, ever failed to give you what you needed. Mercy and grace in the time of never failed. Never will fail. He makes that as a promise, so we're to pray boldly. Why are we to pray boldly? You know what the most audacious prayer you could possibly ever pray to God is? It's not asking God to win the lottery. It's not asking God for your team to win a basketball game or football game. By the way, I don't know who at Clemson University is praying, but somebody's hearing their prayers. They're undefeated in basketball. Can you believe that? Pastor Tad's up there. He's wearing his bright orange Clemson shirt. He's usually only happy during football season. Uh, And and this year he's happy during basketball season. I have no idea what's going on. I don't know how that made it in the sermon. That has absolutely no bearing on anything that we're talking about. Just making sure some of you are awake and alive. Where was I? I shouldn't have gone off on that tangent. The most audacious prayer we could pray is not asking God for something big like a million bucks or to win the lottery or for a sports team to win. The most audacious prayer we could pray is to ask God for forgiveness. Think about that. All of us ask God for stuff. There are no atheists in foxholes. Many people the last 13 days prayed for DeMar Hamlin and prayed that God would heal him. Big prayers, maybe big prayers, I don't know. The biggest prayer you could ever pray to ask God for your forgiveness. And some of you, most of you, I would gather in the room today, are followers of Jesus, and you remember that day you prayed that prayer to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior when you acknowledged your sinfulness. Can I tell you there is no prayer bigger than that prayer, no confession bigger than that confession. Here's why. Because at that moment, you know that God knows all you've done. You know that God knows everything you've said, thought, All the actions, all the misdeeds, all the failures, all the shortcomings. And you have the audacity. At 18 years old, I had the audacity to ask God to wipe those sins away. Based only on the grace of God through Jesus Christ on the cross. Folks, that is an audacious prayer. And most of us in this room that have trusted Jesus to be our Savior know the glory of that prayer. Trusting in Jesus, know the benefit of that, know the hope in that, know the help in that. And that should mean two things. Let me give you two specific applications. First to the Christian and then to the non-Christian. First, Christian, we ought to pray boldly. We ought to. Some of you have some stuff going on in your lives. I'm going to invite you at the invitation to come to this altar and unburden yourself of it. Pray for that loved one to be saved. Pray for that sickness and illness. Pray for that circumstance in life. Pray for that person to come home. Pray for that prodigal to be returned. Pray. Pray boldly. Pray trusting in God. If God will save you from your sins through Jesus, I promise you he'll, he'll hear whatever other prayer you have. He may not answer the way you think, but he'll give you help and he'll give you grace in time of need. And sometimes as Christians, we need to have an act of faith. And sometimes that may mean bowing in front of God at an altar, begging God, asking God to intervene, trusting God to answer. Christian pray boldly. Let me give you an invitation to those of you who in the room who may not yet have trusted Jesus to be your Savior. I want you to think about this for just a second. For starters, I want to invite you to let today be the day of your salvation, to trust in Jesus alone to be your Savior, and here's why: the text it says earlier in the paragraph that all, everything, is before the eyes of God. We are naked and exposed. The word exposed carries with it the idea of having someone hold their neck. It's really a, a term used in sacri- sacrifices. It's the idea of a priest holding the neck of an animal, uh, a sheep or a goat and slitting the, the throat of the animal for then it to be sacrificed. Let me say this to you if you do not yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's going to come a day when you're before God completely exposed in your sinfulness and your unrighteousness, and you'll have no answer for God. Your good deeds might be good for our culture or for your neighborhood or for your family, but they're not good enough before God. But God doesn't expect you or doesn't demand that you pay the penalty for your own sins. Because what the Bible tells us is that Jesus, instead of you being exposed on a cross, instead of you being laid bare to experience the judgment of God, the Bible says that Jesus came and lived a perfect life as a great high priest and hung on a cross. You know how I hung there? Naked, completely exposed before the world, laid bare before everybody to see. And the Bible tells us that in that moment when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he took, he became your sin and my sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He bore your sin in 1 Peter 2, verse 20. He bore your sin. He bore my sin. He did that. He was exposed he was laid bare so that if we put our faith and trust in Him alone, our sins can be washed and cleansed, and we can enter into a relationship with God. If you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus, I would beg of you do what Michael did a couple of weeks ago in my office. Trust Jesus alone to be your Savior. Do what Miss Caroline did just a few months back. Trust in Jesus alone to be your Savior. Look around the room. You're going to see a lot of imperfect people, but a lot of imperfect people that no longer stand before God and give an account for their sinfulness because Jesus has already done that. I beg of you, if you're here today and you have not trusted Jesus, would you put your faith in him alone because he is the one that died on the cross so that you would not have to pay for your own sins. When we give the invitation in a moment, Christian, if you've got a burden that you need to pray boldly about, please come to the altar. Bow before God. Put it in his hands. Unbeliever, let today be the day of your salvation. I'd love nothing more than to tell you how you can trust Jesus. If you're not comfortable coming to the altar, talk to me after the worship service. Talk to a friend. I promise you, if you're here, you probably know someone that knows how to tell you about how to trust in Jesus as the Lord and Savior. They'd love to tell you today how you can get that settled and trust in Christ to be your Savior. Will you let today be the day of your salvation? Stand with me, if you will. Father, we come to you asking for grace and mercy in our time of need. We need you for for forgiveness. We are sinful. We're wicked. We're far from you in and of our own righteousness. But Lord, as a body of believers today, we gather before you in boldness, not because we're good enough to come to church this morning, Because your son, Jesus, is perfect. And he stands between us and a holy, heavenly father. And he gives us the right and the privilege and the invitation to come to you boldly based on his righteousness. So, Lord God, I pray for that marriage that is struggling, that you'd restore it. I pray for that spouse that is involved in sin, that you'd bring a recognition of their sin and repentance. I pray, Lord, for that sinner in the room that doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Pray for that child that's struggling with faith, that you give them faith today to trust Christ alone as their Savior. I pray, Lord, for that mom that's waiting on that prodigal to return. pray for that grandmother that has been praying for her grandchildren for weeks, months, and even years. Lord, we answer her prayers, give her help and grace, and bring those children and grandchildren to salvation. Lord God, we pray that you would work in and through your word today, and you would work in our hearts and bring those that are lost to salvation. Bring us as Christians to our knees in boldness, trusting in you, trusting that you'll answer because God, you are a great and glorious God. Pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.